If you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 5. In a moment, we'll read chapter 5 through the first couple verses of verse 7. Don't worry, the chapters aren't actually very long. Um, And while you're flipping there, I'll start with a question. Who deserves more praise? The college football team with a great record that wins their conference championship or the team in last place in the conference that hasn't won a game yet? Well, the champions are the ones that you celebrate because they're actually worthy of the conference title. Uh, Similarly, no historian will ever praise the efforts of the Persian Empire for being defeated by the Greeks. Visiting dignitaries to the United States White House don't bestow gifts and honor on the doorman, but on the president and on other national leaders of high rank. It's not the lowly who deserve honor and praise, but the great. And the general rule of thumb is that the greater the being, the more honor must be bestowed by those of lower station. Failing to honor those in high positions can even lead to very bad consequences for you, sometimes even punishment. So as Christians, who should we give honor and praise to? Well, Scripture does command us to pray for and honor all those in positions of authority. But of course, they're not the ultimate authorities. They are finite and very limited in their power. All their power has been granted to them by the Lord, whose power, authority, glory, and honor are absolute. God is the only supreme infinite and perfect being and is therefore the only one truly worthy of our honor, praise, and worship. And because the Lord is all glorious, you must worship and honor him. So with that, let's read 1 Samuel chapter 5 and we'll read through to the very beginning of chapter 7. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. And this is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors both in Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, They said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out. 
They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send to its place. They said, If you send the ark of the God of Israel away, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make your images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts. After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh, along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when when they lifted their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. And they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh. Because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. 
He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because of the Lord had struck the people with the great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged to Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So that is a long section of Scripture, and we're going to break it down into three points. The first point is glory in Philistia. This is focusing on that first section in chapter 5. So here we pick up in 1 Samuel after Yahweh punished his people for their idolatry and their blasphemy. He defeated them by handing them over to the Philistines in a massive defeat. In that defeat, Israel lost 34,000 men over the course of two battles because they chose to fight on their own instead of seeking help from the Lord or going to him in repentance. So as a result, Eli's sons died in the battle. The ark was captured. And upon hearing about the ark being captured, Eli himself also died. But the real punishment for Israel, even beyond that judgment, was that the Lord left them. He took the ark, the symbol of his presence, and he took it away. Instead of exiling Israel from the land, which would occur later, God exiled himself. He left himself to punish them. Now, you may remember that the author of 1 Samuel did not name the Philistines as the victors in the last chapter. Israel was defeated, but we're not told that the Philistines are the ones who explicitly defeated them. And now we will see that it was definitely the Lord who defeated Israel. And Israel is not the only nation that he can defeat either. Meanwhile, the Philistines thought that they had achieved amazing things through these events. And the normal practice of the day was to take the religious relics of your defeated foes and parade them throughout your territory. And once you've marched through your territory and you've marched through your nation and that's completed, then the army would take those fallen gods and place them in the temple of whatever their chief deity was. This was a sign of their conquest and supremacy, and it supposedly showed the powers of their God. So if this was any normal victory account from the ancient Near East, we would expect the Philistines to take a victory tour throughout their territory with the ark before placing it in their main uh, deity's temple. But as we walk through this text, we see that this is anything but a standard victory account. In fact, what's going to become very clear very quickly is that the Philistines are not actually the victors at all. And Yahweh, far from being a helpless captive of the Philistines, shows himself to be the only true God and the legitimate conqueror of both rebellious Israel and the Philistines. Yahweh is about to go on a victory march all throughout Philistia. He had just soundly defeated rebellious Israel. The Philistines then thought that the God of the Hebrews was at their mercy. But in reality, they were only alive because of God's mercy. They were firmly under his control. 
So just as there is a reverse exile in these chapters, so there is a reverse of the normal victory tour. Yahweh could not be wielded or controlled by Israel. Now we're going to see that the Philistines are unable to tame the Lord as well. Well, the first stop on Yahweh's victory tour after defeating Israel is the city of Ashdod. And this was not the closest city to Israel of the five major Philistine cities. It was around 30 miles from where the battle took place at Ebenezer. This was an important city, however, because it was the main temple of their god, Dagon. And where better to take the religious relic than to the temple of the mighty God who gave your armies victory, right? Well, some ancient societies believe that adding the vanquished foe's gods to their god's temple increased their power. So according to their beliefs, the power of Yahweh was going to be added to Dagon. Now, Dagon was a fertility god of fish and agriculture. It's about multiplication and growth. He's depicted essentially as a merman with the upper body of a human and the lower body of a fish. And it was next to this mighty, mighty image that the Ark of Yahweh was placed in a pagan temple in the Philistine city of Ashdod. But once again, this is not a Philistine victory tour, despite what they might have thought. The people of Ashdod, they went to sleep happy with their most recent victory and their new relic. But then they awoke to something very odd. Their mighty God had fallen on its face next to the ark. But thankfully, the devoted people of Ashdod were there to help this almighty Dagon by picking him up and by putting him back on his pedestal. And there are three things we can note about this event right away. First, you need to know that this wasn't some tiny trinket on a table. This would have been a large and a heavy image, and it would have been well-grounded, well-set. This wasn't a titsy little Christmas tree ornament. So there's no natural explanation for why this large statue would have been the only thing to fall and fallen face down before the ark. Second, notice the spatial descriptions that the author gives us here. Dagon was face down in a position that denotes humility, defeat, and even worship before the ark. That idol was completely mute and completely senseless, and yet it understood something that the Philistines could not. And then the third thing of note is to notice that this mighty Philistine god cannot even get off the ground by himself. They built an entire temple to something that they have to pick up and put back when it falls. What a great God that sounds like, huh? But that was just round one of the story. It gets even better in round two. In verse four, they again awake up in Ashdod to find the mighty Dagon face down on the ground before the Ark of Yahweh. Well, kind of body down anyway. You kind of have to have a head to be face down. Only the trunk of the idol lay before the Ark. Poor old Dagon's head and his hands have been cut off and left on the threshold of the temple. Now, in the ancient world, kings would have some of the defeated foes' heads and hands cut off to symbolize their complete victory. So this is a complete opposite of what an ancient reader would expect to find. The captured ark is not only completely intact, but it's not as powerless as these Philistines initially thought. Furthermore, notice that verse 4 specifically says that the hands and head of Dagon were cut off. Now, when something falls on the ground, it's common for things to break off. But the word used here requires that something actually be intentionally severed. 
In other words, for something to be cut off naturally in this manner was impossible. And I think the implication we, as the readers, are meant to arrive at is quite clear. Yahweh crushed Dagon and mutilated his humiliated corpse. So the Lord wasn't defeated. He was actually conquering and displaying his victory over his enemies. And at this point, the Philistines should have started to get the idea, should have started to get the hint at least, that this ark was beyond their ability to handle or to control. And yet, with spiritual blindness, we see that they do not understand. But the author explains the situation very clearly in verse 6. He says, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. Now, the word for heavy in the Hebrew is kavod, and it's used throughout this book of 1 Samuel. And it's the same word that's used for glory. So there's really a play on words being employed. So first, a while back in 1 Samuel, we saw that Eli and his sons and the Israelites, they failed to give weight or to give glory to Yahweh. They chose instead to feed themselves and to glorify themselves. Now we see that the Philistines, too, are choosing to honor themselves and failing to honor Yahweh. So God's hand was heavy against them. So having already humiliated their false god, now the Lord begins to punish the citizens of Ashdod with tumors. And pure chaos came with what was most likely something akin to the bubonic plague. And finally, when things become so bad that they couldn't take it anymore, they said that the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. And did you notice the ironies in that statement? They really admit that the ark is mightier than their God. Yahweh's hand was hard against them and their God, supposedly Dagon. Their mighty God had been humiliated and dismembered. The Lord's hand was hard against their God who, notice, didn't even have hands anymore. Well, finally, they couldn't take the suffering, so they called a council to try to figure out and make a decision. What do we do about this? And the Philistines decided that maybe a change in geography will solve the problem. It'll be enough to break this ark's power. And Gath, the city, probably thought it was going to be an honor to host this captured religious relic. More than likely, the people of Ashdod were just unlucky in the minds of Gath. The plague, the other events, they had nothing to do with the ark. That was just bad luck. Or maybe the people of Ashdod, they just weren't pious enough. So surely the holy, pious ones in Gath would fare better. But they were sorely mistaken. In the text, we see Ashdod survive seven verses with the ark in their city. Gath makes it for one and a half. So Yahweh sent a panic and a plague on the people of Gath so that they would feel the weight of his glory just as Ashdod had. The Gathites, they had no idea what it was like to be in the presence of a holy God, but they were being taught the lesson in dramatic fashion. And this was Yahweh's second stop on his victory tour. The third and final stop on the tour in Ekron did not appear to last very long either. So word traveled and everyone in Ekron knew what had happened in Ashdod and then in Gath. And immediately, the people go into a deathly panic. And along with that panic came death and disease. Once again, God was making the weight 
of his presence known. So no longer was the ark merely a trinket to the people of Gath. Instead, it was heralding God's victory over them. And what was becoming plain to them is that the presence of Yahweh was their defeat and their death. And they decided that they had had enough. And the only answer for this level of panic, disease, and death is to get rid of the thing believed to be causing it all. And you might think all that might be enough to lead them to repentance. But not only did they fail to repent, but they continued to honor their defeated God, Dagon, instead. He had been dismembered, defeated, thrown across the sanctuary of their temple. But that did not stop the people from revering him and placing him in the temple and worshiping that spot where his members had been thrown. So rather than admitting that their God was worthless, they chose to honor the threshold on which he was massacred and to continue worshiping their false God. They didn't want to honor Almighty God, who was clearly more powerful than their God. They just wanted relief. They just wanted to escape from God's presence. They couldn't take Yahweh's victory tour anymore. Well, that brings us to chapter 6 and the second point. That's glory unapproachable. So chapter 6 is a fascinating chapter for many reasons. First, it's by far the longest Philistine speech in the entire Old Testament. It's 120 Hebrew words, so it's rather lengthy. And the reason why the author includes this in this section is to highlight the true nature of the Philistines' problems. And we saw hints at what their issues were back in chapter 5, but now those sins are going to become very clear. So after seven months of suffering under plagues, panic, and death, we see the Philistines at their wit's end. And the significance of this last-ditch effort, this last-ditch solution, being planned on the seventh month is no accident. That is a deliberate display of God's providence. God's victory tour and the consequent defeat of the Philistines comes to fruition at a highly significant period. Yahweh's victory was perfectly declared over the rebellious Israelites and the Philistines. Philistia had to do something or they were going to be completely doomed. So they did what any pagan society does. They called their pagan diviners to ask them what to do. And the reply is fairly simple. And it really follows much of the normal practices of the ancient Near East at the time. Send the artifact back to its homeland with an offering to appease this angry God. So five gold tumors and mice are to be sent with the ark to represent each of the five main Philistine rulers and cities. And in this way, the diviners argue that the Philistines may give glory to the God of Israel. So in other words, the solution demands that the Philistines acknowledge some level of weight to God's glory in their plan. And part of the diviner's speech also encouraged the Philistines not to harden their hearts like the Egyptians had. And so we see there that they knew enough about Israel's history to understand the warnings that Yahweh was not to be trifled with. But despite the advice of their diviners, we see a great deal of skepticism still among the Philistines. Even though they had suffered greatly and everybody seemed to know the cause of the problem, they didn't want to give up the ark. Maybe something else caused the plagues, the mice, the death, the panic. And here we really see their spiritual blindness and the extent to which their hearts had been hardened. 
They were as stubborn as mules, so their plan added some parameters in order to make sure that the source of their problems was actually the ark. They would return the ark with the images of gold as instructed if it was truly Yahweh who had afflicted them. But how could they know for certain that it was Yahweh? Well, the answer was to make the ark returning to Israel so naturally impossible that only an act of a powerful God could achieve it. And here's what they did. They made a new cart that had never been defiled with any common use. But rather than choosing oxen or mules or some other common beast of burden, they chose milk cows. Now, milk cows are not very common to use as beasts of burden. Furthermore, these cows are specifically ones that had never worn a yoke. And that means that they would not know what to do, how to pull together, and probably would fight to try to get the yoke off the entire time. In other words, no one would expect an untrained cow to pull anything anywhere. But two untrained cows working together is impossible. They're going to work against each other, and it's going to be impossible to get them to go in a straight line. So that would be impossible if you had men and drivers directing and guiding these cows. But there wasn't going to be anyone leading or directing these cows. But there's still another hindrance to the ark being returned. Because a cow will do whatever it takes to get back to its calf. So strong is the natural inclination for those mothers to seek their young that no cow will walk off in an unfamiliar direction instead of going back to its young. Everything was stacked against the odds of the ark returning. It could never happen on its own. That is, unless Yahweh was truly the Almighty God. And so they go through with this plan and to both the Philistines' joy in being freed from the terror of God's presence and dismay in losing their trophy, the cows went straight on to Beth Shemesh without any deviation. So those five Philistine lords watched as their, again, quote-unquote, prize returned home despite every obstacle put in its place. The Philistines witnessed the people of Israel receive the ark, the five golden tumors, and the gold mice for every settlement in Philistia. So having seen this whole event unfold of the offerings of the Israelites, the Philistines knew that the problem was out of their hands, it was solved, and they returned home to their own stricken lands. So their spiritual blindness and their hardness of heart led them to blaspheme the name of God just as Israel had before. And so they suffered defeat at the hands of the Lord just like Israel had And the ark, far from being at the mercy of the Philistines, instead showed what the presence of God does to the unrighteous. The sheer weight and glory and holiness of Almighty God is destruction and death for the wicked. They stood in the special presence of Yahweh and it brought them doom and destruction. His holiness will not be defiled and he does not hold guiltless those who blaspheme his name. And so the only relief the Philistines could find was in escaping that special presence of God. The Israelites, funnily enough, clung to the ark in sin and were destroyed when they lost it. Meanwhile, the Philistines were thrilled to capture the ark, but sent it away freely after being brutally taught about the holiness of God. The glory of God cannot be approached with indifference. Let's go to the final point 
This is glory in Israel. So the ark arrived back in the land of Israel at Beth Shemesh on this new cart. So seven months after the ark left Israel, now it returns laden with gifts of gold. The Israelites at this time were harvesting their wheat, meaning these events took place in the spring, probably around May. And this wheat harvest was a time of joy and a time of celebration. Because obviously a successful wheat harvest means that there's food to eat for the year. But without the ark of the Lord in Israel, some of that great joy in that celebration would have been greatly reduced. But then, all of a sudden, these people harvesting wheat in Beth Shemesh, they look up and what do they see? But the ark of the Lord coming towards them. And strangely enough, it's not being directed by any human. Nobody is carrying it. Nobody is leading it. Just walking right towards them. No one was anywhere near the ark. And yet it came straight along the main highway, right up to them and stopped. And ironically, this is in and of itself a lesson. Both the Israelites and the Philistines thought they could carry, direct, and wield the power of God. But now Yahweh clearly displays to both peoples that he needs no one to do exactly what he pleases. So having completed his victory toward Philistia, he marches victoriously back into Israel. The Lord's special presence had returned to the land. Now Beth Shemesh was one of the Levitical cities, meaning priests lived in that city. This city in particular belonged to the Aaronic Kohathites who were at charge with the handling of the Ark of the Covenant. What a fitting place for the Ark to return to, a Levitical city where priests are ready to take care of it. Out of all the cities, these are the men who should know best what to do with it, how to take care of it. So everything is set up right, but now there's one question that remains. Has Israel learned their lesson? Have they learned how you must approach the Lord? They had failed to give glory to God. Then the Philistines failed to honor the Lord. So now, will Israel fear the Lord and give him glory, give him weight, or will they continue in their ignorance and their pride? And unfortunately, in the text, we see a couple areas that seem to imply that their hearts were still not right before the Lord. First, for all the suffering Israel experienced because of their blasphemy, there does not appear to have been any repentance up to this point. We see nothing said of them trying to make amends. We see no change in their behavior, and they don't seem to be trying to honor God for who he is. There has been almost no change since the ark was taken away. And second, we see a failure to follow Levitical law, the word of God, in two different ways. And here's where we need to remember that this was a Levitical city where the priests lived. They should know how to care for the ark. They should know how to follow the word of God and live as his people. But the first thing they do is that they sacrifice incorrectly. Sacrificing at this location was not a problem because the ark was there. But a sacrifice is supposed to be offered with male bulls. Cows do not constitute an offering. Now, some take this to be an allowed sacrifice in an unusual circumstance in an offering of thanksgiving. But I think what we see here is actually a breach of the law that they commit. And it tells us that these priests and Israelites were still not right before God. And then the second breach of the Levitical law is that the ark was supposed to be covered and enclosed so that the Israelites would not look upon it and die. And here again, we see a failure to follow the word of God. 
And in their minds, I don't think anyone thought that these were a big deal. The ark is back, so God must be happy with us. All is well. Let's celebrate. And as modern readers, these mistakes may not seem that bad. You know, it's not common platitude. Their hearts were probably in the right place. But as we look at verse 19, I think we see the true gravity of the situation. It says, He struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. Israel had already been severely disciplined to the point that God withdrew that special presence from them. He withdrew it so they might learn to give him proper weight, proper glory. And when the ark returned, it operated as a diagnostic heart test to see if Israel would now obey God and glorify him. The priests of a Levitical city instead show clearly that they still had not learned to honor the Lord as they should. And so 70 more men lay dead in addition to the 34,000 men who had been destroyed before the ark left. And yet still, Israel was not giving weight to the holiness of God. They still approach the glory of God flippantly, comfortable to serve him in whatever way they felt like. They didn't obey God. They didn't give him their best. They didn't repent. They kept on. And as a result, they were judged for their insolence. And God never punishes unjustly. So that means that these seemingly small errors were not just honest mistakes, but deliberate disobedience showing this true state of their sinful hearts. Both their actions and the underlying state of their hearts had been evaluated by the Lord and they had been found wanting. And it isn't until chapter 6, verse 20 through 7, 2, that Israel seems to begin to understand who the Lord really is when they ask, who is able to stand before Yahweh, this holy God? But rather than repent and begin obeying his word, the men of Beth Shemesh, they take a book out of the Philistines' playbook and they move the ark along to another town. They send word to the men of Kiriath-Jerim, say, hey, come get the ark and get it away from us. So in order for the ark to be properly cared for, it had to be taken out of the Levitical city of priests and taken to Kiriath-Jerim, which was not a priestly city. And this is completely backwards from how it should have been. So it appears that Eleazar did a far better job than the men of the priestly city of Beth Shemesh. But despite no further judgment occurring as a result of mishandling the ark, repentance in Israel did not take place for a while longer. The author tells us that 20 years went by before Israel lamented after the Lord. So for 20 years after all these events, a question mark remains over the spiritual state of Israel and whether they had really understood any of the lessons that the Lord had taught them. As we continue into chapter 7 next week, we'll see that Israel is going to reject the Lord and instead demand a king to rule over them. So where is the repentance? Where is the obedience? The continual problem for Israel was that they chose to serve the idols of their own hearts instead of giving weight and glory to God's holiness. The idol did not have to be Baal or Dagon. Choosing to serve God however they wanted instead of how he commanded them was no different in the end than serving idols. Now, some of you may think I'm going too far in my assessment. 
But don't forget that in this very passage, 70 men were struck dead because they dared to worship God in their own way. Going into the presence of the Almighty God is not to be taken lightly. And so the question from the men of Beth Shemesh comes back again. Who can stand before Yahweh, this holy God? Well, modern Christians, they're going to react in various different ways to passages like this. Might sound something like this. Oh man, I'm glad God doesn't act like that anymore. That was a mean Old Testament God, but now that Jesus has come, we don't have to worry about that angry God. We have Christian liberty now. We can worship however we want. It's just the heart that counts. Worship is about how I feel. So I need to worship in a way that makes me feel good. Do any of those platitudes sound familiar? I've heard a lot of those over the years, more than I care to count. But the truth is that all of those statements are lies. James 1.17 says that in God there is no variation or shadow due to change. Malachi 3.6 says, for I, the Lord, do not change. The Lord does not change and cannot change or he would not be God. So the same God who disciplined Israel and defended his glory in 1 Samuel is the same God we are commanded to worship today. He has not changed, nor will he ever change. The special presence of God that was pictured in the ark has been fully revealed now in Jesus Christ. John 1.14 tells us that Christ, the word, came and dwelt among us. Now, the word for dwelt there can also be translated as tabernacled, as an ark, temple language. The ark was a symbol of God's special presence, but it was not in and of itself a living thing. But the Son of God came and took on flesh and became the true ark, God's actual presence in human form. He is the same God that the Israelites failed to give glory and honor to. Christ is the one who marched through Philistine territory, humiliated Dagon, and crushed the Philistine people with the weight of his glory. Jesus Christ is the Lord who returned to his people and defended his holiness against the blasphemous and idolatrous men of Beth Shemesh. The Old Testament and the New Testament God are the same God, and he is not to be approached lightly or worshipped flippantly. As the scripture says, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. The holiness of the Lord is unapproachable by anyone who is not perfectly holy. And if you still think things work differently now than they did back in the Old Testament, consider two New Testament examples. First, Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead because they blasphemed God in Acts 5. Second, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that those who fail to discern the body and blood of Christ can eat and drink judgment on themselves to the point that they may die. Now, it may not occur in an instant. It may not occur in a lightning strike now, but it could be a terminal illness. It could be a sudden accident. For anyone who thinks you can approach God on your terms, based on your desires, your wants, your emotions, consider Hebrews 10.31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You cannot stand before the almighty, infinite glory and holiness of the Lord. That same question, who is able to stand before Yahweh, this holy God? Only those who have repented of their sin 
their pride, their self-sufficiency, and the blasphemy of thinking they can come to God however they want. Only those who go to Jesus for their holiness can stand before the Almighty. And that same verse from Psalms that warns you to kiss the Son or perish also declares, Blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. And this is the grand irony of this passage and really salvation in general. Who would guess that the solution to the problem of our sin is to go to the one who is also the judge and to plead for mercy? Many of these Israelites failed to realize the solution to their problem. In some ways, the Philistines seemed to understand things better than they did, but they too failed to repent and go to Christ. The presence of God is death to the unrepentant, but it is life to those who are clothed in the holiness and perfect righteousness of Jesus. What a curious thing the presence of the Lord is. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.16 that the gospel of Jesus Christ is to one a fragrance from death to death, the other a fragrance from life to life. And then it ends with a great question, who is sufficient for these things? Yahweh is all glorious and so you must honor him. And if you honor and give glory to Christ in your heart as Lord, his presence is life itself. Cling to the Lord in faith, then you will live through the better and the more glorious ark. In the words of Hebrews 12, 28 and 29, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you and we praise you, for we know that you are a consuming fire. Your holiness, your power, your glory are infinite and absolute. We do pray, forgive us when we forget that. Forgive us when we take lightly your worship and your person. And we thank you most of all for Christ who came as the better, full picture of the ark. The one that we can go to and plead for mercy. And so rather than being crushed, we are instead built up. We are instead allowed to call on the Father as our Father And we can approach the presence of God, the presence of his very throne room in joy and in worship, still with reverence, still with awe, and yet with great joy through Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this in your name.